0: Welcome back to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor, where life, sports, and medicine intersect. I'm your host, Dr. Derek Burgess.
1: You want to up-level your circle, right? Because proximity is power. And I, I never forget this. Who is in, who is in your inner circle? And, and what ideas are they putting in your head? And what are they modeling for you so you can see what's possible?
0: All right, tonight we have Dr. Melva Penn Bingham and we'd like to welcome you to this podcast. First, I'm very excited to have you on. You are a person of many different uh, endeavors. So, you know, first, just as a brief introduction, uh, Dr. Melva is a board certified radiation oncologist, um, a podcaster, an entrepreneur, um, a real estate investor, and a wife and a mother of three. So my first question is, do you sleep?
1: Yes, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I sleep. Have I always gotten to sleep? No, it's yeah. been an evolution, right? Of Self care.
0: So. I hear you. So, well, first, if you could just start off telling us about kind of your early life, what led you to a career in medicine, and then tell us about your family.
1: Sure, sure, sure. So I am born and raised in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, to Evora and Melvin Penn. So my father is a physician. He's a family physician and my mother's an educator. So I grew up, I have two siblings. My older sister is also a physician. We went to the same medical school and my my brother is, um, you know, working and he decided not to go to medical medical school, enough doctors in the family for him. And, And growing up, I had really strong influence in the community. So I knew very early on, I wanted to go into medicine. My father worked in the inner city of Charlotte and there were a lot of changes at that time. That that was the whole kind of start of gentrification, right? So I grew up seeing that happen and he was very, he very much was a leader in the hospital system. So at the time Arthur Ashe had a lot of campaigns going. I just know because my father played tennis and I would see the campaigns for sickle cell at the time, teenage pregnancy was a big problem, hypertension in the community. So I was able to see that, but I took a different path because we, We didn't have a lot of cancer in the family. And my father's um, brother, my uncle Boo had cancer. And this sounds really naive, but I felt like cancer I'd been hearing it my whole life. So it was like, okay, there's the cure for cancer walk. There's the, Mm -hmm. you know, you're raising money for cancer. So my thought was that it wasn't terminal that you didn't die from cancer. I know that sounds really silly coming from an oncologist, but I had a lot of hope. So my second year, I believe in medical school, my uncle went to hospice and I wasn't familiar with what the concept of hospice was at that time because we didn't really focus on it in school and they still don't really do a great job of teaching on hospice and palliative care. And he said he was going to hospice and two weeks later he passed away. So that was really tough because I was very close to my uncle. That was my only uncle, on my father's side. Um, and then after that, it was, it was a series of seeing that, you know, there really wasn't a cure for cancer. The compassion wasn't there. So I decided My mother is a breast cancer survivor. So she's out maybe 16, 18 years at this point, she underwent a cancer diagnosis and it was a series of people in my life who were affected. So I I chose radiation because when she was diagnosed, you meet all these doctors and it's really confusing. And you go from appointment to appointment and the radiation oncologist really impressed upon me. They had extra time. They were happy, a little quirky. Radiation oncologists were a little quirky. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had they had extra time and they really cared for her. And the appointments were in and out. It was outpatient medicine. It mixed the science. So that's really how I chose radiation oncology. Um, I don't know if I answered your question or not. Yeah,
0: you absolutely did. And <laughs> okay. since we're talking about radiation oncology, that's even a, a subspecialty that many people in the medical community don't understand. So will you explain to the listeners what exactly, how do you take a path to get to radiation oncology?
1: Sure. So radiation oncology is, I did four years of undergrad. I went to Duke University, and then I did four years of medical school, and then you do an intern. Some people do a surgical intern. You could do general medicine intern. Um I forget what they call it, a prelim year, Mm -hmm. pediatrics. You can do different things because, you know, it's kind of your last year before you specialize. And then it's an additional four years. So total of five years of residency in radiation oncology. A lot of people think we're under radiology. Our Mm -hmm. boards, our American Board of Radiology, but diagnostic, therapeutic radiology are very different. So it's five years uh, of residency. So it was a lot of school yeah. <laughs> and that's the path. And a lot of people, I guess the next question I can go ahead and answer is like, what does a radiation oncologist do? If you want me to share yeah, that. Please. yeah. Um, <laughs> so radiation oncology is, it's a type of, you know, very local specific treatment. And I, I usually describe it. I know you're a surgeon as surgery where we're, you know, instead of cutting the cancer out, we're treating it with radiation So it combines radiobiology, so at the double DNA strand break level, with the physics of the energy. So we treat with high beam energy, so photons, electrons, they're protons, and the treatment is often in combination with a surgery or chemotherapy or immunotherapy. So there's some types of cancers that radiation is rarely used, and then there are others where it's pretty much a standard of care. Typically radiation is after surgery. So for breast surgery, for breast cancer, if a, a woman has a lumpectomy or a partial mastectomy where they leave the breast tissue intact, radiation is done after surgery is is complete. Um, sometimes if a woman's had a mastectomy where there's a complete removal of the breast tissue or a modified radical mastectomy, if their lymph nodes are higher risk concerns, there's still radiation therapy to the chest wall, or if the woman decides to get a reconstruction, um, to the reconstructed chest wall, um, or reconstructed breast. And then the only time we really do preoperative radiation therapy is, Sometimes and it goes back and forth between the data and I'm not a sarcoma specialist, but in sarcoma, a lot of times pre-surgery and then there, you know, there are different studies, the benefits and, and cons to that, which would be sure. much past this interview. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, I'm orthopedics at the end of the day, right? So we'll right. see. We
1: have we get your patients too for hos.
0: Yeah. No, you're right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You can talk
1: about heterotopic ossifications,
0: right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, that's mostly going to be seen in like after hip replacements and things. So I do mostly total joint, total knee replacements. So, okay. So I you don't, don't see a lot. Yeah. I haven't had to send anybody for radiation in a while. Yeah. So that's yeah.
1: Good. One time when I was in training, we actually had a gentleman, he had two elbows. I, I don't know if he had a bilateral yes. surgery, but we did yeah. that. And then we see a lot of after the hip surgeries for the heterotopics and then occasionally, when I rotated in training in at um, Walter Reed, we would get yeah. some of the, the veterans
0: who would have sure. that. Sure. All right. So we mentioned breast cancer. And you know, like you said, your mother is a survivor, which is excellent mm-hmm. to hear. Um, but that kind of led you down your path. So right. of course, October is breast cancer awareness month. Uh, you know, I thank goodness didn't have anyone in my family that had passed away from breast cancer. But however, my wife mm-hmm her mother, and several people in her family. So it's a a big calling, you know, for her and her career, as well as our family. We're very aware of it. Our daughters are very aware of it. We speak about the breast cancer cause, and it's something that's very important to her. So, you know, being Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I would like to just speak about breast cancer, number one, and then as far as treatment and screening, uh, what women should be doing, but also, you know, it's not only a, a... it's mainly in females, but we do have about 1% or so of males that also have breast cancer. So if you could just speak on breast cancer for us shortly.
1: I think the where we start is what's the incidence, how many women have breast cancer. And when we look at 2021, there's an estimated 281,000 cases of invasive breast cancer. Um, that there'll be diagnosed in women. And like you said, about 2,650 cases that will be diagnosed in men. And then they're also pre-invasive breast cancer. So that's ductal carcinoma in situ, which 30 years ago, we never caught breast cancer that early, but it'll be about 50,000 of those DCIS cases picked up. So back in 1975, one in 11 women, women would be diagnosed with breast cancer now in 2021. And it's been steady. It's one in eight women, a lifetime risk of about 12.9%. And older women, the longer you live, the longer chances you'll have of having breast cancer and where I really like to speak and and where I like to speak on is the mortality. So. The mortality has been dropping in breast cancer cases, and that's due to early screening, um, more awareness. So we have the invention of the mammogram, their programs, primary care physicians doing screening. And there's some debate, you know, you'll see between the age and, and one of my colleagues. I don't know if you've had her on, but Dr. Chapman just published today. It was released that there's a benefit of screening screening black females at the age of 40, as opposed to Caucasian women at the age of 50. She just had that published today and she shared that data Um, So it goes back and forth. You'll see the differences in screening age, but mortality has decreased. It was you know 1.9%, and now it's around 1% between 2013 and 18. So that's great. That means early detection works. So breast exams, screening with mammograms, we have a lot of sophisticated technology now that we didn't have before. So breast MRIs, uh, 3D tomographic imaging. So we can see the breast tissue much better. And and one thing that I do tell women, let's say if they had a CT scan of the chest or they had a chest x-ray, that's not looking at breast tissue. A mammogram looks at breast tissue or an MRI of the breast or an ultrasound of the breast. So I think that's really important for women to know. The other thing that I like to talk about is talking to your family. Okay. Because especially in the black communities, we don't talk about our healthcare problems a lot. And I always say, you know, kind of phone a friend when you have the gossip to share, ask if she's gone to the doctor to have her mammogram. And if she hasn't been to the doctor, can you take her? Can you make the appointment for her? And that's for elderly women, as well as family members. And I think the more we talk about that, the better we'll be with racial disparities. So, speaking about racial disparities, hold on one uh, more se- one no, second. Okay, so, <laughs> when you
0: mentioned family, one yes. thing that popped in my mind is secrecy. So, okay. I have uh, a diagnosis of breast cancer, but I'm not gonna tell my sister, I'm not gonna tell my kids. So, a genetic linkage might be there. Um, I won't get into all the specific genes as far as breast cancer, but there's definitely some genetic linkage, especially in people who have a first generation. A family member, where you need to be screened earlier. Uh, you right. need to have yearly exams. You might need to have an ultrasound or MRI ten years before that that person that had it. But if you don't know that, and if someone dies and you don't know why they died, or you it's a secret, that's something that you're hurting your other family members. So that's another important point.
1: Right, very important, and it is it is difficult, which is why when we do outreach in the community, typically it's in October you know, with the pandemic, it's changed a little bit. It's, it's that open discussion or it's finding people that you trust and we'll have people that don't even want to share anything with their family members. You know, they drop them off and they don't even know why they're coming to the building, which. Wow. You know that's a process, so but very very good point. So like you mentioned, um, there are genetics, so mainly BRCA one and BRCA two, and we're finding more and more genetics that give increased risk. So genetic testing, if you do know that you have a family history, is very important. Um, and then there's really the choice of who needs to have genetic testing. So talking to a genetic counselor is who will really help you with that guidance. Um, is what I tell a lot of women. As far as racial disparities. The incidence is similar among um, races, especially Black women and white women, but the mortality is higher for Black women. And a lot of that has been focused around what you're talking about in our communities. It's decreased, you know, discussion, diagnosed later. And these are things that we've been working on the communities to raise awareness around breast cancer. Um, But the treatments are good. The the treatments for breast cancer are good. There are a lot of women living. There are a lot of women living with breast cancer and with what we call metastatic breast cancer, where the breast cancer has either traveled to the bone lung or some other part of the body and women are living. There are some side effects, but there's some women and there's a whole culture of women with metastatic breast cancer that are, are living great lives. So I just tell people not to give up. If you can prevent it, prevent it. If you can find out your family history, do If you can take someone else to mammogram, do that. But if you are diagnosed, get the treatment, ask your doctor, you know, what your options are because the options are varied. You know, you can have a complete mastectomy or you can have breast conservation therapy, which is the partial breast being taken off plus radiation. Then there's hormonal treatment. There are trials for more aggressive cancers um, with chemotherapy. So triple negative is what you'd hear. And I don't know if this is too much detail. You can stop no, me. I can talk all yeah. day. Yeah, <laughs> um, triple course. negative breast cancers are more aggressive. And we see more of those in black females as well. And that's when you don't have either of the three, any of the three hormone receptors. So there's ER for estrogen, PR for progesterone and HER2 new is another um, marker. So when you don't have any of those markers, then it's more aggressive. So there are more trials and treatments coming to say, Hey, how can we treat a more aggressive cancer have better cure
0: rates. So great, great. And it covers a
1: lot except risk factors.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So we mentioned uh, treatment. So what about the overall health of your patients? How do you deal with them? You know, when you get a cancer diagnosis, like you said, most people first thing that pops in your mind, I'd imagine would be death. So overcoming that fear, being able to wrap your mind around a diagnosis and hey I have to go through this series of treatments you know like you said it might be chemotherapy it might be radiation uh, treatments surgery so I know I have multiple steps that I have to overcome how do you speak with your your patients to try to ease their fear um, and just kind of have them accept what they've been dealt with and, and move forward
1: Right. You you know, it varies because a lot of people think what we do as oncologists is very sad. And it's, it's the contrary. There's a lot of laughter, finding joy, a purpose to live. Um, Really asking the question of why is what a lot of women and and some of my male breast cancer patients ask, like, why did this happen to me? Mm. And I think once you work through that, there's support. So we always look for a local breast cancer organization. There are a lot of national breast cancer organizations for support, speaking to other survivors. Sometimes it's helpful for some women and men, and sometimes it's actually not helpful. Uh, But having that support system, a lot of hospitals, I always suggest that you look for the social worker, patient navigators to help you understand your diagnosis, understand your rights, Um, You know, so you can kind of decide upon your treatment options that you want. And then I I think, I think really it's about, I always ask my patients this, I ask, I start with the goal. What's your goal of treatment? Like if you're coming to see me in a consult telemedicine or in person, I start to say like, what's your goal? And that's when I figure out what's important. Some patients say, "Hey, I don't want to know any of the details. I'm going to do whatever you tell me." I have other patients who say, "Hey, I only need to be here for a couple of months because my grandson's going to be born and I'll I'll be fine when he's born." And I think connecting to that goal really helps the patients take the ease off and say, "Okay, this person actually cares about me. Like this physician cares about my well-being and my outcome." And then the next question I really ask is like, because by the time they're coming to see me as the radiation oncologist, they've seen a primary care physician. They've been referred to a surgeon for surgery. They've probably already seen the medical oncologist. They've seen the radiologist for interventional biopsies. They've had a lot of information, a lot of different phases. So I'm coming in at the end. So it's really easy for me to like say what could have been done or done differently, but I don't do that because obviously I wasn't there. So I kind of take a break and I ask like, have you cried yet? You know, and that's a really important step with just figuring out where you are because some people don't yet know, and they haven't vocalized that they're scared. They don't know what worries them the most. And then the next question I generally ask is, you know, what scares you the most? And we talk about that. If it's a horror story that they've had from another person that's had breast cancer, they've recently lost a friend to breast cancer, which that happens a lot. There are women who bring women in for treatment, and then they're my patients after. Um, so some of that you can't control, you can't prevent some of it's genetics or family. So I think it's important to ask these questions and have these conversations. And then for women to know, it's okay to reach out and look for support. So risk factors, we didn't talk about risk factors. So just to break them down into layman's terms, so people can understand getting older, because again, one in eight, it's based on age. We talked about genetic mutations The main ones are BRCA1, BRCA2, some can be linked to other cancers like ovarian cancers, Um, a longer menstrual period, so no pregnancy or, or late pregnancy, a history of dense breast. That's another reason for MRI. And again, there's debate around that, a personal history of breast cancer. We talked about a family history of a previous cancer, like ovarian cancer. Women who had a um, radiation therapy in the past, like for Hodgkin's disease, which we used to treat the entire chest before the fields of radiation were um, shorter, usually in their forties to fifties, those women will have um, a chance of breast cancer. You're seeing less of that now because the technology has changed, um, never having children and being over 30 years old at the first full-term pregnancy, um, any hormone replacement therapy can put you at risk overweight and obese. And this is one that I think a lot of women forget. So we always talk about making, I usually refer my patients to a nutritionist to kind of switch their eating habits, get in daily exercise, um, not being physical, physically active and and drinking alcohol are some of the risk factors.
0: Right. So like you said, some of them you can control, some of you Mm -hmm. can't control, but definitely there are many lifestyle things that you can change with your lifestyle, obesity, um, smoking, now did we mention tobacco
1: we we didn't but it's i mean it's it's linked to like every cancer sure, so sure stop so and
0: just making healthy choices right <laughs> right exactly, so exactly that's the way that you can try to limit your or decrease your risk because like you said if you have family members you're already at increased risk uh being a minority like you said the minor- the mortality is worse even though right. the amount of cases is the same well thank you for sharing this information you're this welcome. is something that can definitely save a life um, or make the quality of life better for sure, so tell us about being an entrepreneur. This seems to be something that is innate to you, is almost second nature. so how did you become an entrepreneur
1: you know i, I feel like it I feel like it's one of those things that happen like some people just have the natural hustle right yeah. <laughs> and they get yeah. out and go, and some people don't but I think you can learn how to be an entrepreneur. So early on, I, again, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I remember, I think it was the third grade, they had an entrepreneurial fair and I didn't know what that was. And I think, you know, we had our minority achievement program, like we were MAP students, you know, young, gifted and black and singing the song. And I went to the fair and I, I think the seeds were just set really early. And my uncle who I talked about who passed away from cancer, he was an entrepreneur. So he started out in real estate. So he owned the houses on either side of him. And my father is very conservative. So like a lot of the crazy risk I've taken in the entrepreneur world, like my dad would never do that. So yeah, risk had... dad, poor dad. <laughs> right, right, right. So, but my, my father though, did get in on a real estate. Um, he made smart investments. So like he had one, I know he netted over six figures, mm-hmm. um, a, a piece of property. The city eventually came and like, you know, did the construction through it, the highway. So he got a big payout and it was, it was very strategic. So it wasn't like the type of entrepreneurial things I've done where I've done a million different, you know, things. It was it was a smart investment. So I kind of joke about that, mm. you know, that I got it from my my second dad. But <laughs> um, but yeah, so early on, I mean, we did things, gosh, I'm trying to think. I, I was in junior achievement. I don't know if they have that where you are, but no. it, it was all about business, and so you'd have like You'd have a product, you go out and sell it, and then they would teach you how to, you know, do fake trades in the stock market. We had inroads. I don't know if you have that where you are either, but for minorities who want to go into business and you would do um, summer internships and they taught you all about how to be professional. I mean, it wasn't really entrepreneurial, but it was business. So I was introduced to that very early and I decided, you know, medicine After doing like an intern at the bank. So I learned about money (laughs) very early on. And then I learned how to be really good at making money. And then I realized that like everybody can't do that. So that's when I started coaching and teaching other people. Because one of the things I found is as physicians, there's this physician identity that's really hard to let go when you switch over into your. I'm a physician and I'm an entrepreneur uh, identity and there's a certain skill set that you need to be successful because if you continue to operate as a physician, you're going to miss out on some key things and key ways to make money.
0: So Absolutely. And what you're speaking about is the mindset that I'm really trying to overcome now because you get an MD and you get in this box and people say you're a doctor. Okay, why can I be a doctor and this or why can I be a doctor and an investor? But you're supposed to be a, a doctor and you pledge to, you know, take care of people. And no matter if it takes working 120 hours a week, whatever it is, you do it. And we've learned to do that since, you know, medical school, staying up all night, studying all weekend to take a test. And you kick right back into study gear right after that. So we've had this tunnel vision. And most people, you know, I'll speak for myself, I struggle to see what's the world outside of it. Um, right. I don't know if you ever really got into that box. It sounded like you were an entrepreneur long before you even made it to medicine, which is excellent. Uh, but that is something that many physicians struggle with.
1: Right, right. It, and it's definitely a limitation. So sure, I felt it. But I think for me, it's come up more in, you know, imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. where even if you were talking to me right now, and I would talk to you about what I would do, because I haven't reached, you know, X. YZ entrepreneurial goals, I would feel that I didn't have the success of maybe what I had hoped to. But, you know, I was yeah. talking to my husband the other day and he's like, you know, Melva, we've done over 15 fix and flips. We own commercial <laughs> property. We own two, almost three franchises. You have a podcast. You have coaching. Like, he's like, what else do you want to have, you have for three success? Kids. <laughs> right. And we have three kids, you know. <laughs> And it's one of those things. It's almost like you, even that same tunnel vision that we get as physicians, I think it can happen as an entrepreneur because you want to up-level your circle, right? Because proximity is power. And I Mm -hmm. I never forget this. Who is in in your inner circle? And and what ideas are they putting in your head? And what are they modeling for you so you can see what's possible? And you don't want to do imposter syndrome or self-sabotage, which a lot of us go through. But you want to use that for inspiration to know, okay, if they can do this, I can do this. And I think, like you said, it took me a long time. Like, I don't know. I feel like Inspector Gadget or something. I was secretive. I didn't want anyone to know all these entrepreneur things I did. Like when I got into medical school, we actually sold, my husband drove, um, my husband is my partner in crime in all of our investments, by the way, yeah. it's like a we. Okay. And, and he was the same way, like entrepreneur at a young age. And so we had a mini donut business. I bought it, I think like first year, don't tell Sally Mae, but I used like a Sally Mae loan because <laughs> I went to school on an academic scholarships. So I had no debt. At the time, and I paid it back like fourth year at Duke because I did like basketball madness, and I'll never forget the the you know I was a, a
0: like midnight madness,
1: yeah, like midnight madness. Okay. Like like we had the mini donuts, you know, it was like we can make a hundred mini donuts per hour, cinnamon sugar and powdered sugar, and so we had the machine, and I got permission. They paid me as a vendor. It, it was my fourth year for senior night. And I also did events for my hall. I was a resident advisor and they didn't realize like how large the machine was that I was like using in the dorm. You know, can we say fire code when they signed off? So anyway, after college, before I got to medical school, I took a year off and and we did, um, we had a gardening gift shop. It was like a seasonal franchise at that point. I mean, we were 20, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing, but anyway, we were one of the top producing stores in the region. And long story short, I had to sell the mini donut machine because secretly I didn't want everyone to understand. And how much of an entrepreneur I was because I was going to medical school. I was going to be a doctor. Mm. And then I must have mentioned it in my essay. I can't really remember. But I know when I came, they were looking for the donuts. And I was like, what are y'all talking about? They're like, that's the only reason we let you in. We wanted your donut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was that like, was okay. too
0: funny. Well, yeah, yeah. Right. So let me
1: go find some donuts. Right. So yeah, I think I think the limits happen. And you that's why you have to do this personal development. And when you're transitioning from, like you said, this, this tunnel vision. You have to change your network and increase it to people outside of your vertical, because right now we know medicine, you know. And as you're stepping into other things, you're going to need people around you that can lift you up. So yeah. I hope that yeah. makes sense.
0: So speaking about the power of your circle, so that's why you're here tonight, right? So, Dr. Okay. Dr. Julius Oni, who is one of the the founders of Excite Capital. Uh, which is an investment, real estate investment company, they have monthly meetups. So they have a speaker and then at the end you meet everybody who comes in. So uh, we're on the meetup and I introduce myself and then Lisa Hilton comes on, introduces herself. So we speak, Lisa comes on the podcast and she says, do you know Dr. Melva? No, I don't. Five minutes later, (laughs) she sends out this email and connects us. So, you know, that's the power of networking and, you know, Like you said, we might have never come across each other, but as you start to build your network, especially in a entrepreneur circle, entrepreneurial circle, you're going to come into contact with people and you never know when you're going to randomly meet somebody who might end up being a business partner.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and Dr. Julius, I, I heard him. I'm I'm super excited. He's inspirational with we're looking to get into doing our own real estate syndications and setting up our private equity fund next. That's actually what we're working on now. And he his story is just inspirational with you know how much capital he was able to raise. So oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah, I
1: I love if you introduce me to him. I haven't met him. So sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll keep my, that's networking. <laughs> that's it. That's my task. I'll take care of it. Okay. So okay. let's talk about ice cream. How do you get mm-hmm. into the ice cream business?
1: Okay. How do you get to the ice cream business? So it's crazy. And we should ask, how, how do you get into the ice cream business in the middle of a pandemic? So <laughs> literally before the shutdown is the day we signed on that business, but it had been a two-year effort. So we had this crazy idea and I, I'm pretty sure this started with my husband's idea. He, he looks at a lot of different... So my husband is a full-time dead, full-time real estate investor, and he oversees kind of the district management of the stores with our district managers for our franchises. And he was looking at different business principles. And it was the concept of cash flow. So you can get cash flow in a lot of different ways. And so we would go to the banks with our portfolio. We would have our real estate and we've had to rearrange our real estate several times, You know, um, sell off, liquidate, because we pretty much had real estate wherever I was based on the medical career. So although we didn't have California, which I wish we had, we were there in the 2008 crash. If I would understood how to get Creative financing, we wouldn't like, I wouldn't even be working right now, I'm pretty sure. But because um, the, like people were coming in from out of America to buy all of that real estate at the time in 2008, in California, when yeah. we were there. So we lost our short, we had cleared out some of our real estate and, you know, the bankers were saying, this is one of the things I coach on in my um, group is, They wanted your folder to look fundable and it needed to look neat. So they didn't really necessarily want us to have a portfolio that was spread wherever I did residency or, you know, had a job. Mm -hmm. So we kind of like, we're working on our portfolio and making some changes and we came across this concept of business acquisition. So it is, instead of starting out new, what if you could just like real estate, find a business, an existing business that needed a paint and carpet, or maybe needed a structural repair. So you could come in, buy low, (laughs) have high value, make some changes to increase the revenue. So we really looked at it as a business acquisition value add, if that makes sense. Sure. So at the time we were looking on some of the different networks, networking, talking around, and there was Coldstone and we have three kids. We love Coldstone. And we did the research and my husband saw that a uh, casino was coming in the area. So ice cream stores, revenue increases when you have entertainment, that's just how it works. So we were able to negotiate to purchase. We'd never purchased a business before. Like we literally were negotiating in the parking lot when my son was doing like speech therapy or something. Right. And we're like writing on a sheet of paper out. I'll never forget it. Like what our offer would be because we'd offered on, you know, a ton of different real estate properties. We had really no idea about a franchise or like an existing business. So we created relationships with the broker. um, We put in an offer and like they accepted it. And then it was, it was really crazy um, (laughs) that like, I think we were going on a flight. I forget where we were going, but we were basically like accepting this over text. And like, (laughs) I think I found out when like my service came back on that we, you know, we got it. And then the next step was funding. Right. So that's how we got to ice cream because of cash flow.
0: Gotcha. So you said you have two stores now, and now you're looking into a third?
1: So we own a Cold Stone, Cream- we own a Cold Stone Creamery franchise. That's what we got in 2020. It was March yeah. 2020, like literally when the shutdown the was of, happening. Yeah. And I just remember being like, oh my God, how are we going to do this? The manager was out for a while. They were having all these regulations. It was crazy. And they signed it over to us like, it's yours now. And we've been away <laughs> for two years. And then at the end of last year, actually, we picked up a Subway so we also have a subway franchise. That was subway another business. Fresh. Acquisition. Yes, yes. And they are going through an entire rebranding. It it launched in July. That's a that's a more difficult brand. So we've had a lot of learning lessons there. And we are actually doing a lease improvement on our um, we're doing lease negotiations now. We have rights to a third, it'll be our third franchise, but second Cold Stone Creamery location. And this one, we plan to co-brand with Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Now, are your um, <laughs> locations in the same region or are these spread out?
1: Yeah, they're in the same region. So, the second Colstone will be in the same location, like 10 minutes from the subway. And then... If you're not familiar with Hampton Roads, we have all of these tunnels. And so you could right. be 15 minutes away, but yet three hours to get there. Okay. So one our our current cold stone, the ice cream, is on one side of the water and the other two on the other side of the water. But but in but for the most part in non-traffic times, they're in the same vicinity. So we, we did, we did look at, um, this is one of the things as an investor, when you're acquiring businesses or you get into the franchise world, or you're doing real estate investing, you're looking and analyzing a lot of deals. And I suggest that to anyone just starting out. Like, just get used to the language, get used to the community. Who do you need to have on your team? What questions are they going to ask you? It's just like with real estate syndications, they suggest that you underwrite, go through the underwriting process, which can be painful, um, but do that process so that when you finally decide on what you want to get into, whichever vertical it is, you're well versed, right? It's just like rotations in medical school or a residency. So, by the time you need it, when you first meet the people, maybe those aren't the people you work with in the end, but by when, the time you finally get to someone to one accept your offer to fund your offer, you at least look like, you know, what you're talking about.
0: Sure. So. so did you always look into the ice cream industry or did you look at other, maybe fast food restaurants or different things?
1: <laughs> no. And this is going to sound crazy. Like I can't say, you know, all of my life I wanted to own an ice cream shop. I didn't, right. I, I knew nothing about the quick serve industry or ice cream, but I could eat it. Right. And so, <laughs> so really the, again, I take off all the kind of like, and in my approach, I'm just going to full disclaimer, it's probably different than a lot of people. So one, I have a high risk tolerance. I I suggest that you know your risk tolerance. Two, I have a partner. Like I'm not doing this by myself. I have a network of people to support and find, you know, like since we've gotten in the franchise business, I have two professionals. That's all they do. They coach franchisees on having success. So I, I found the people that I need to connect with in my network. But going back to the ice cream, like, have you always wanted to do this? we're looking at things clearly with the glasses of, is this a profitable investment? Is it safe? Is it solid and can we scale it? And the other things that we look to evaluate a deal, whether it's ice cream or sandwiches or houses is, is it something that I can have leverage? Because when we first started, it was the middle of the pandemic. Our manager was out for a while. I would push a 16 hour day on a weekend to help the young staff learn the system, wash dishes. I mean, we were having like $4,000 days and I was trying to get that ice cream out, even though I didn't know how to make it yet. Right. But I don't do that anymore. That was like a temporary thing. So when I mean leverage, I mean, leverage with your money, time, energy, and effort. Mm -hmm. And so with an ice cream store and with the franchise, you have systems in place. They have billion dollar corporations that do their marketing. So they're they're driving the customers to you and your job is customer service and to deliver the product, right? So I don't have to figure out a marketing campaign with the franchise. I don't have to figure out what products we're gonna sell. They know and they test it and they spend a lot of money. So you have leverage that way. And then when you use a management system, so we're not owner operators where we're in the store all the time. We mm-hmm. have kids, so we're in the store a lot but I probably haven't like had an ice cream cone in a couple of weeks, maybe like a month or two, right? Because mm-hmm. our store is really busy. So actually I go and support my other franchisee where I don't have to wait as long, which right. I know it sounds crazy. But <laughs> it, it, again, if that makes sense, it's, it's not the end product. I think you have to have some passion and some connection. But when you're looking at it truly for cash flow or an asset that you have, it, it's, it's more important. The, the other thing which I'll add, and I think a lot of people get confused. Like I saw a Facebook comment and someone wants to do a franchise and they are like, actually, I think I'm doing my next podcast on this. And they were like, oh, well, you don't want to do a franchise because these are all the negative things that happen. You have to have multiple stores. Yes, you do. But it's not just about the money you make with one franchise. It's the skills you learn, the network you have, and the doors that open for you. Because we're multi-franchise owners, we get different lending, right? We have different opportunities they bring with us. It opens conversations that as a physician, I may not get into. But now that we're multi-franchise owners in the first store, we're able to increase the sales by $100,000 in the first year in a wow. pandemic. That starts conversations.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right? It's so like, oh, they're More not people are approach you to take over their store now, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And like I said, when we've evaluated deals, we've had owners call us. We've had the corporation call us for franchisees that have not met the requirements and they're trying to get them out the system. When that EIDL loan came around, we were, we had another one to purchase where we were in agreement, but the, the franchisee got the loan at a cheap rate and he said, he'd just keep it and keep running it crappy basically. But you get people (laughs) that bring things to you when you demonstrate a need, we got the subway because of what we did in Colston.
0: Gotcha. So So leverage and growth, right?
1: Leverage and growth.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned coaching. So how has coaching helped you as far as, your outlook and being more effective, I guess.
1: Yeah. So I, I've had a long journey with coaching. People don't really know what to do with me because, <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, wait, are we going to market her or talk about her being a radiation oncologist? And you know, I did a lot of motivational speaking in the breast cancer realm. I don't know if you could tell about what I said in my passion there. Mm. You know, I wrote a book on where is it putting the good sea in cancer care. And then I can turn around and talk about being a franchise owner or like rehabbing a house. So I've done coaches and my, I think coaching can definitely help you, but things you have to do, you have to have your own agenda before you start to work with the coach. You have to know what is the outcome that you want? What do you need help with? Now, some people may not know what they need help with, but do a little bit of work before you work with a coach, because every coach is not for you. The style is not for you. So many physicians, and, and I'm actually talking about this coming up soon, take courses and they don't get results. They don't implement because they're not getting that support system and normally by the time you learn something or let's say you have a new skill you want to increase when you're ready to implement it and you hit challenges the guru or experts that you've hired to coach you are gone so my approach is a little different i um the coaches that i've had in my life have really been mentors for me
0: yes
1: and i hope to get a specific skill set from them when i first started i thought i could get a coach that had a nice website and they could tell me how to do everything I need to know as an entrepreneur. And then the more experience I have, because I've spent a lot of money on courses. I've been called a courseaholic before. I'm no <laughs> longer that. And I try to help recovering courseaholics. Yeah. Um. But, but now what I tell people is, you know, look at what this person has actually done, not what they're teaching you how to do. You need credibility. You need re- referrals, like because I could be talking to another doctor, but we learn differently.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and. It makes a big difference. So I think you need to know why you want to coach, how long you want to work with the coach and what desired outcome that you want to have. And I don't really know if I answered your question, but what it's done for me is it's taught me how to better identify what my needs are and who can help me to get that.
0: Right. What I heard you say is know what you want to get from the coach before you hire the coach. Right. Right. Don't just say, Hey, I need help (laughs) because you might end up with nothing. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So tell me about your 1% code.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So this started this year, and I think I think I need to update my Dr. Mom website. So if you're on there, I may not be offering all those services like we talked about pre-call. Um, so the one percent code for me is is a way of thinking. So it's the things that we mentioned: it's leverage, it's fulfillment, it's diversification, and a lot of it is a mindset around money, around that physician identity versus you know entrepreneur identity, and then it's it's how do you continue to be a physician because we, a lot of us work really hard. Like I'm needed, I work in a rural community. Mm -hmm. I'm not ready to quit tomorrow. And as a matter of fact, I wouldn't be on these podcasts talking about this if that's what I thought, because my administrators listened to me actually. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I still want to be, I want to help people figure out how you can be a physician, like you said, a physician and an entrepreneur. And what does it look like to diversify your income and what you're capable of doing and changing in this world while also having a career? So the 1% code is really about creating lucrative income streams and not just like, you know, I talk about multiple income streams, but you build one well at a time. And you have to do that with clarity. You have to know why you're doing it. Like when I told you about the Colstone stone, it's very, you know, it's very clear. It's not because I like the, you know, apple pie a la mode <laughs> cold stone. Right. It's because I saw it as a vehicle to add legacy to my family. And I think a lot of physicians say, Hey, look, I want to make more money so I can maybe work less but they haven't defined a number. They don't know if they need $5,000 a month or $20,000 a month. And they don't know if they like money, if they like making money where it's not recurring every month where it's stable, or if they just like to do one project a year, people haven't explored that. So those are the type of things that I talk about in the 1% code.
0: That's great. So that's a Facebook page for you as well as a podcast. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so the podcast and, and Facebook page or Facebook yes. group. So I have a Facebook group called the One Percent Code Collective. I would love if people want to check me out. I do a live show every Thursday right now. It's at nine PM Eastern. I may up that a little bit because it gets late around here, and it's free. It's it's free advice. We have conversations around you know where physicians and other healthcare professionals are stuck. I've had guest speakers on there, so it's it's a really new group that i really started developing about a year ago. And then the One Percent Code podcast I started in July. I think we're both new podcasters. Yeah. Yeah. congratulations yep. I saw yep. your 20th exactly. episode um, you. I think I'm almost I'm almost 20 episodes in. not quite there yet yes. um, and, and the podcast honestly I would suggest it maybe you would the same that anyone who's thinking about getting into podcasting I think it's a great way to meet other people like I wouldn't have met you I wouldn't have met Absolutely. Lisa mm-hmm. and you learn a lot you're able to learn and see more about what people are doing and, and there are a lot of podcasts like junkies they just have it in their ear all the time. So you're making a deeper connection with your audience because they're, you know, it's in their ear while they're doing other things. So, yeah, that's the podcast.
0: All right. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I have one more. So on timeout with the sports doctor, this is your final timeout. So, you know, we've talked about a lot. So you are a physician, you, you know, entrepreneur in many different realms, investor, wife, mother, and you have to, you seem very focused and very driven. So when I listened to all that you had, all you were speaking about, it reminded me of my middle child who (laughs) has, you know, she just is, she's very creative and she has these huge ideas. Um, So just speaking to someone who wants to do more than just be a physician or wants to do more than just have a great nine to five job how would you tell them or what would you tell them as far as just pursuing their passion or pursuing their dream?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for your middle child. You know, I can, uh, I don't know if I can mentor her, but I think, absolutely. I think you absolutely have to have a mentor and you have to stay focused on what it is that you believe because being creative, being a big dreamer. You know, I've had people like the president of my hospital who used to be there. was like, oh my God, Dr. Melva, you are a true visionary. And he just, he was like, the people have no idea what you have here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Doesn't everybody talk like this and think like this? He's like, no, (laughs) just you. Um, So you have to, you have to have somewhat of, you have to have a mentor. who's going to be there to tell you, because again, it's great to have good ideas and you don't want anybody to take that from you, but every idea is not a good idea. So I haven't executed all my ideas because they're not all good. Okay, (laughs) Uh, but my advice would be to find a mentor and then really work with that mentor. And then in each stage of your development, whether it's your business journey, your health journey, your career, find new mentors and continue to reach back out. And then I think you have to be a mentor yourself. So one of the reasons that initially I did a lot of like free speaking events and I was out just letting people know it was possible is that people didn't see enough of people doing a lot in the community, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of funny. What happened tonight? We went to, um, we were at a a burger place, My, my daughter had a, a choir event or chorus event at school. And so I took the younger two and a gentleman came up to our table and he said, is this your daughter? It was my 11 year old. And I'm like, yeah. And he said, well, I'd like to give her this. And he had a $5 bill and he said, she was so respectful and kind. And I was like, oh, this one was, cause my middle <laughs> child is like all over the place. And then he had a $5 bill and he gave it to my seven year old son. And sometimes I think in this world, we forget that they're still good, you know? Yes, absolutely. And that was really nice, you know, to, to pass it forward and pay it forward. And of course they went and got some ice cream. I was, I, you know they I always...
0: reinvested back into the store <laughs> right, <they're reinvestirer.
1: laughs> it wasn't our store it was somebody yeah. else's store so we were supporting the community right? right but it was just it was a nice it was a nice gesture and it just reminded me that yeah you find mentors but also be that mentor for someone else stay close to your dreams know that not every idea is a good idea and like you know make it happen because it's possible
0: yeah pay it forward
1: yeah
0: absolutely well thank you very much for your time you for like you said me. you have a lot going on. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. And I will make sure that I will hook you up and link you up with Dr. Oni to do my part far, as far as paying it forward. Well, i can, Thank like so much continue to continue to. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And we'll continue to grow together. Thank you for continuing to support this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a five star review. And if you haven't done so, subscribe so you continue to get the updated episodes. Until later, peace.